Today is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, the Sunday prior to the resurrection where Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. That's covered in detail in Luke chapter 19. Palm from the palm branches that were strewn on the road by the crowd and waved at Jesus as he was entering Jerusalem. We recently covered this specific event, uh, again, not too long ago in Luke 19. Today I want to focus on this period after the triumphal entry and prior to the crucifixion. So we'll continue with the trial periods before the Jewish and the Roman courts. In context, what happens just up to this point that we're going to read is Judas betrays Christ, Peter defends Christ, then Peter flees, follows at a distance, and then denies Christ. Uh, you see the sifting process of, of Peter, and also Peter's breaking down and, and weeping bitterly. And we also see the last thing that, we're gonna, that, that we covered before we get up to what happened today is that Jesus largely ignores the religious leaders. He doesn't engage in a discussion with them except to affirm that he is the Son of God. Now I want to turn, I want you to turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 1 through 5. I want to turn here because this fits into the chronology of what was going on in the hours prior to the crucifixion. It's great having the backdrop of the play because as I start going into this, you know, they did a great job of, of, of talking about what was happening. Um, verse 1, it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and went and hanged himself. Many have questions about Judas. It's kind of vague, or it is, is a little bit about what happened, and then he ends his life, so you don't get a lot about Judas here. But Judas had remorse, but did he repent? Is there a difference? Was he saved, etc.? A lot of questions about that. Well, what I want to do is this is a great portion of Scripture to focus on the difference between remorse and repentance. I want to focus also on the difference between Judas and Peter, which helps to make the case. And certainly the play helps me to make my case. But in the English dictionary, both words remorse and repentance are close but distinct. Remorse is a guilt and shame over a wrong. Repentance is similar with the added action of change of direction. In Greek linguistics, there's a similar difference. There's metamelomai versus metanoia. I'm sure you'd said this before, it all sounds Greek to me. But metamelomai means remorse, and it's only used five times in the New Testament. Whereas metanoia, repentance, is used closer to a hundred times. In addition, one verse in particular, 2 Corinthians 7.10, uses both words in the same verse, and you can see the dissimilitude there. Uh, I'm just going to read that real quick. It says, For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Maybe when you go home you can meditate on that verse and see that there is a difference. 
remorse. It's regret because of the consequences of sin. The Bible says, according to, from Judas' perspective, seeing, Judas seeing that Jesus was condemned, he became remorseful. Now, Judas might have been appalled at the consequences of sin. Judas might have been appalled of the consequences of his betrayal, seeing the unfairness, the beatings, and the way Jesus was treating, be treated. And you, you, it stands to wonder, you wonder, well, what did he expect after what he did? But repentance, on the other hand, now, is a regret because of the root, the root of the sin. There's a change in direction also as a result. The weirdest thing about being a pastor is how I get convicted by my own messages. I had a, a sin of the heart this week, and I would know I was preparing this message. And I confessed my sin to God, to me and him alone. And because I was preparing, I, I pretty much was almost done. I actually thought, I, was re- I recollected what I had written. And I actually said to God, am I upset because of the consequences of my sin, because of what could happen as a result, Lord, or am I upset because this sin is offensive to you? There is a huge night and day difference between those two reasonings. Okay. In repentance, there's a change of mind that causes change of direction. The inward change spills over to an outward change in actions. Now let's, let's go through the actions of Judas and Peter. Judas realized what he did. He was ashamed, so he gives the money back, but he kills himself. He ends it. He feels bad about what happened, but it appears that there's no true repentance and seeking of forgiveness. Judas confessed to the ungodly leaders, who didn't care anyway. They said, you see to it. But, neither conf- but he didn't confess to God, nor changed his ways, and the evidence is of the hanging. And I'm not saying that, uh, that killing yourself is the unpardonable sin, but you know, let's go into the context of what was happening, the actions of Judas, Okay. Judas could have still fulfilled Old Testament prophecy with the betrayal of Christ and still sought forgiveness and been part of the early church because God forgives, right? But he didn't do that. Now let's look at Peter. Peter realized what he did. He was ashamed of what he did. He had a good catharsis. He was crying. He wept bitterly, that purge of emotions, right? He follows Jesus again, and what that did was he was overcoming his failure. It must have taken him a lot to continue to, to follow Christ and to be able to look into his eyes. And you see at the end of John chapter, uh, the end of the last chapter of John where he has that dialogue with Jesus, Jesus says do you, to Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? That, that strong love. And Peter says, I phileo you. It doesn't come out in the English, but it comes out in the Greek. So Peter is admitting to the Lord after all this happened, after the, the resurrection, he's admitting to Jesus, I fail, I'm falling short. I said before I would defend you to death, and then I I fled. But now I'm telling you, Jesus, I I don't necessarily have that love that I need. I I need your help with this. You see what I'm saying? So Peter was such an incredible success story. And he's obedient to his God, to his own cross. Now I'm going to tell you something according to history, all right, to traditional history, that when Peter was going to be crucified, he said to his, his, uh, the people who were going to crucify him, I, I can't be crucified in the same way my Lord Jesus was. I'm not worthy. I, I request to be crucified upside down. 
And history records that Peter was crucified upside down. Now, I hate to be upside down. I can't imagine what he must have gone through. I mean, the pain and the, the, the blood rushing to his head and all that, but he just, it's, it's just such an evidence of what was going on inside of Peter's heart, right? The change. My teacher, a good teacher years ago, said to me when I was young, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. So I like to do illustrations. I'm going to do an illustration of remorse and repentance. This is a picture of remorse. Go in a certain direction, you stop. Oh, man, I did something wrong. The shame, the guilt, don't look at me. And that's it. That's the end. This is a picture of repentance. You're going in a certain direction. It's the wrong direction. You stop. You realize you did something wrong. You're ashamed. You know, what do I do now? I, I've got to deal with this. I know what I'll do. Change in direction. And you go the opposite way of the way you went. You see the difference between remorse and repentance. So you have the English, you have the Greek, you have an illustration. It, it doesn't get any better than that. But if you don't know Jesus, remorse doesn't get you into heaven. Repentance does. The Bible's very clear about that. That's why it's used uh, 20 times more than remorse in the scripture. Repent and believe, the Bible says. And if you're new here or you, you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you may say to me, repent of what? Repent of the life you've led up to this point. Your self-directed ways. Your self-centered ways. The way, the sins that you've committed that you didn't think were so bad, but now you realize faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God that this is wrong. So you want to repent. You want to change direction. So you repent and you believe and God receives you and accepts you. If you know Jesus... Remorse doesn't heal marriage, it doesn't heal relationships, and it doesn't heal your walk with God. Repentance does. I've said before, marriage is a series of apologies. Show me a marriage where nobody says I'm sorry, and I'll show you a troubled marriage. Now, those of you who've done marriage counseling know that. You see that. Nobody wants to be the first one to say I'm sorry, and that's a problem. Then you don't talk to each other, and you go in separate rooms, and... Three days go by and you wonder what you fought about in the first place. Uh, so that's what you have. But I would add this to marriage being a series of apologies. Not only a series of apologies in light of today's sermon, it's also a series of changes of behavior. Apology is just a word, but do you mean it with your heart? Same with God. Uh, you know, with, when you deal with God, of course it's one way. God doesn't apologize to us because he doesn't sin. But it's the same thing. We repent. Even as Christians, we repent. Lord, I should know better. I'm a Christian. Why am I going in this direction? I want to do this, Lord. I want to go in the other direction. I repent of my sin, Lord. Please forgive me. And he always does. There's too much remorse and not enough repentance in the world. Too many people are ashamed. They're ashamed of the consequences of sin. But that's it. Because it, maybe it makes them feel funny and everyone else is realizing that they did something wrong. And now they start to realize it. Too much report, uh, remorse and not enough repentance in the world. And I've got to tell you, there's too much re remorse and not enough repentance in the church. We need to get out of remorse and we need to get into repentance. I need to say it again. We need to get out of remorse as a church and we need to get into repentance. And that's where true healing comes. Now, I want to take you back to Luke 23, which is where we left off the last time. Luke 23, starting with verse 1. 
And this is all in the same chronological period here, as you'll see. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who also was in Jerusalem at that time. Jesus was accused of a few things. One, perverting the nation. And that was commensurate to corrupting the morals of the nation. How, how weird, how incongruous with God's character. The Son of God is accused of corrupting the morals of the people. I think they kind of had a handle on that on their own. They didn't need anybody else to help them out. The second thing he was accused of was forbidding the subjects to pay taxes. Well, that was an outright lie, because we covered that in Luke 20. Jesus said regarding taxes, render to Caesar what is Caesar. Show me the inscription on the coin, Caesar. Give to Caesar back what Caesar. So that was an outright, uh, outright lie. The third thing he was accused of doing was making himself a king, being in competition with Caesar. Well, that was kind of a, a half-truth, but we know that a half-truth is really no truth at all. Uh, it didn't, he didn't come this time around to lead a rebellion. He was not in competition with Caesar. This was for an, um, a celestial kingdom, not a, a temporal revival. Okay? It was a spiritual revival. And the fourth thing is he stirs up the people. He was accused of being an insurrectionist. There's a very interesting scripture in Matthew 11, uh, verse 12. It says, Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist unto now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. People have hit that verse in so many ways because it's such an enigma. But there's a picture of, and again, you have to understand the times they lived in. Walled cities had gates, and when people wanted to take over a city, they would storm the gates to get in. They would storm the fortified areas, and once they broke through, they were into that city. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The insurrection was not in the temporal plane. It was in the spiritual plane. People were, were, were storming the gates of heaven to get in. Now, this doesn't mean that God can't keep his cities walled, and a bunch of people, if we all got together, we could overtake God's kingdom. Remember, this was a, a figurative picture and some translations do a better job of making you understand that what jesus was saying is from the message to repent with john the baptist and his message of forgiveness and his message of the only way to god all of a sudden in one point in history hordes of people in that point in time were starting to get into the kingdom of heaven the irony to all this is that if jesus came the first time as a conquering messiah to take over rome and he was winning all these people who accused him would have been behind him. They would have rallied behind him. So they had lying motives. Their plan was to surreptitiously get rid of Jesus by morning so there would be no chance of anyone defending him. They had to lie about his charges to get rid of him because if they came to the Roman court with religious charges, which they basically amounted to, uh, that would never necessitate capital punishment. The Romans would have been, you know, and they did. They were like, we, this isn't, 
this, this is not an issue for crucifixion. You know, don't bother us with this. So they had to trump up the charges. What this shows is that even if you have a great testimony, people will still malign you. They'll lie about you. They'll denigrate you. They'll denigrate your character. And probably some or many of you have had this happen to you. Some of you may be dealing with this presently. Could be a family member, could be a coworker, and you're, you're living, trying to live a good, clean Christian life, and people are saying bad things about you or trying to get you in trouble. But I want you to take heart. They did it to Jesus, who had the best character and the best testimony of all time. Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing, if they persecuted me, you are echoing my message. They will persecute you. Rest assured that that's going to happen. Now, Again, I've said this before. Peter said that don't be maligned for do, being an evildoer. There's no, there's no glory in that. If you find yourself in the back of a police car because you burglarized a house, you can't say I'm being persecuted for my faith. You're supposed to be, if, if you're going to be persecuted and it's going to be a credit to you spiritually, it's because you're living a good, clean life and people are persecuting you because of that. Uh, I, it escapes me where the scripture is, but it talks about how, and it's, maybe it's in Peter also, but it talks about how you once lived according to the world. You did worldly things. You, you, you had drunken parties and you, you sinned and you did all these things. And uh, now you've changed your life and people malign you because you don't do the things that you used to do with the world. And they have a problem with that. Verse 8. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he had hoped to see some miracles done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for before that they had been at enmity with each other. First, I want to hit on some of the historical facts. Both Pontius Pilate and Herod were in Jerusalem because of the Passover. They had other residences and other headquarters uh, outside of that area, but they were in Jerusalem because of the Passover. Pilate, his headquarters in, in this area was the Praetorium, these were his headquarters, but he spent much of his time when he wasn't there in the Mediterranean, in uh, Caesarea, which wasn't a bad gig. Uh, they both became friends, the Bible tells us. It's maybe because he thought, Herod thought that Pilate honored his jurisdictional rights. There had been enmity, enmity between Herod and Pilate before, and then they became friends through this situation with Jesus. The jurisdiction issue has to do with uh, a tetrarch or an official would preside over you if the offender lived or committed the offense in that person's jurisdiction. So because Jesus was the uh, Galilean, Pilate was able to kind of send him off to Herod. And as you saw in the play, Herod might have felt, gee, this Roman guy is honoring me uh, because the Herods were like puppet kings. But Pilate, his motives were to get rid of Jesus. He didn't want to deal with them. So it was beneficial for both of them, and they became friends. Herod Antipas... Because there was many Herods. His father was Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee. He was the same man who put John the Baptist to death. Scripture tells us what's very interesting is 
Herod was a, definitely a very confused man. Certainly, he, he was morally bankrupt. In the one sense, Herod Antipas, or John the Baptist, would accuse Herod of the things that he was doing wrong, immorally. So Herod had John the Baptist in prison. But the Bible also said that there were times that Herod liked to listen to Jesus. He liked to hear Jesus' words, maybe talk to him about the scripture. But what happened was Herod made a foolish vow and had to keep it. And he ended up having to behead John the Baptist because of his foolish vow. Now, Jesus answered Herod nothing when he went before Herod. The question is why? Well, Herod was a buffoon, and Herod was very, a very worldly guy. And Jesus wasn't going to tell Herod anything more than what Herod had already ignored from John the Baptist. It would be like casting pearls before swine. After all those miracles and healings, Jesus wouldn't perform for Herod here in this situation. You know, also today, you can look at situations today, and there are those that want to listen and ask all sorts of questions about the Bible and Christianity and God, because it, it tickles their ears for a while. But they don't let the word t- take root in their hearts. See, that's what they're lacking. If you don't know the Lord and you want him to perform, like Jesus in front of Herod, he won't perform in front of you either. That's not what God does. I've heard people say, if God is real, have him come down now and show himself to me. I'm sure you've heard that. Or, I want to see a miracle and I'll believe. Or, one of my favorites is, if God causes me to win the pick six, I'll take that as a sign. Well, good luck on that one. But Jesus said, a wicked and perverse generation seeks after a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. That's the sign that we celebrate this time of year. The sign of Jonah was Jonah being in in the fish for the three days, and then coming out, uh, coming back to life in a sense, you know, coming out of the water. Jesus, on the third day, he rose again. And Jesus said, the only sign that this generation is going to get from me is going to be the sign of Jonah, again, which was the type of the resurrection. God is not a magician, and he will never be goaded into doing tricks for hard-hearted people. He is the sovereign king of all creation. And I think sometimes we forget that, even as Christians. We get so in our routines that we forget that we have access to the throne of the sovereign king of all creation. That's pretty impressive. He's not a magician, and if anyone's looking to be entertained, they can see a David Copperfield show, because God's not going to do tricks for people. The tangible nature of God's reality comes from the effects of his working. I'll say that again, digest that. The tangible nature of God's reality doesn't come from him entertaining us it comes from the effects of his working when you see people who have been a slave to drugs or a slave to prostitution or some of these incredible stories of people's lives hurts pains horrible things happen to them okay and then they turn around and they seek the lord the lord draws them they repent of their sins and they start to following him and they turn around and they become pastors missionaries, people who devote their whole lives, their whole waking hours to serving the Lord. That's evidence of his tangible reality. That's what we should be looking for. So what can we take from today? Well, something as simple as a children's play taught us what we need to know about this time of the year. And I've said this, I said this when I, I prayed. You don't see 
any great examples of the resurrection in the media. The only thing you see in the media about the resurrection is something to defame the resurrection. Okay? There's a spirit of, of, of evil that runs these people. They, it's just such a balance of positive versus negative. You see the, uh, the Da Vinci Code, the big deal made about the Da Vinci Code. Well, that fizzled out. The big thing now is the whole ossuary of Jesus, supposedly, and the more they interview these guys, the more they're backing off from their stance. Well, yeah, well, we never did have bones, and, and on and on and on. And who knows what it's going to be next year, and it's always timed to be at least a few weeks or a month before Easter. It's always timed that way, uh, coincidentally. The reason to celebrate this time of the year is not necessarily the family get-togethers and all the things that come with the Easter celebration, but it's the resurrection, which we're going to go much deeper into next Sunday, the resurrection. The fact that Jesus died for our sins and the only way to get entrance into God's kingdom. Two things we can be sure of through all this is, number one, as Jesus was in front of Herod, God will never entertain anyone into the kingdom of heaven. It's just not going to happen like that. The second thing is, in order to partake of his glorious kingdom, we need to do it his way. There needs to be a true repentance. There needs to be a change of heart. So the only question from here is, the only where place that you can go from this point is, will you now open your heart towards him? Let's pray. The fact that Jesus died for